Mark Sherwood followed an interview with Wally Dean. I'm talking to Mr. Wally Dean, who is involved in Wally Dean. <laughs> yeah. Hello, Mark. Hello, right. Yeah. school. Cool. 
sends him off to worm with scrubs, and he ends up on A-Wing. Um, now, having done research into Wormwood Scrubs, the, re the suicide rate of Wormwood Scrubs in 1967 was phenomenal, and uh, particularly amongst, amongst the younger offenders. Um, and so really, everybody was in a bad place. And then a friend of a family doctor came along because he'd heard of the story, and he pulled Wally out of prison managed to get him through the probation service. Used various detoxes, etc. and started to get him built up to the to the Wally Hope, you know, the, the man they had known. And are you recording at the moment? Yeah. Oh right, okay. Well, I was just, I was just gonna It's tricky to run the story into such a short, you know, I want to talk to you about where my research is going, but to be honest, I could talk for a couple of hours on where it was when we talked, you know, I mean, it's such a big story, so, I mean, I hope your listeners will go up and Google Wally Hope, etc. Like I say, I've got bits on YouTube, etc., which will, you know, fill in a lot of the story, really. Um, one of the things, one of, one of the avenues I didn't expect to go along was starting to look at the way that social engineering and uh, culture works. You know, I mean, I remember when we met, we were both sort of crass fans and we already had an identity and a common ground, etc., a shared understanding of things, you know, through liking certain things. And I realised how much culture shaped us, how much it shaped you, how much it shaped me, your listeners, culture, which we believed was our own. And when you actually, I started to look at things and I realised that certain things like the International Times, you know, which was a big underground paper that, you know, of, of that era, the, the UFO gigs, etc. They were all orchestrated by some very rich, ex-Etonian, you know, that baby boomers, you know, they were people with more money than sense, and there's some really interesting um, crossovers between America's MKUltra program, which was a massive CIA program involving lots of drugs, and, um, mescaline, scopolamine, uh, LSD, I mean LSD experiments were going on at 156 different institutes across America and MKUltra became, you know, the CIA's covert opera uh, operation to test drugs on the public became public in 1973 and basically that operation was also being run in this country you know, MI6 were always one of the founders of um, the CIA. The CIA had come out of the OSS, the Op Operation of Strate uh, Operational Strategic Services, and the intelligence had been run very much by the British side of things for a long time. Um, and so it was easy to research on what had gone on in America. You know, you've got the Ken Keyses, you've got the Timothy Learys, etc. But then you start 
rule sort of what were deemed as rogue operations. You know, I mean, Leary was being chased around by the FBI. And, you know, I mean, he got imprisoned. He had to break out of prison. He ran away to Algiers. And that all looked like he was being one of us, being a bit of a hero. But then you work out that the whole time he's doing it on behalf of the CIA. I mean, he was actually part of making LSD illegal. You know, he went in front of the Senate. And when they asked Dr. Leary, do you think that LSD should be available to everyone? He basically said no. And, I mean, that came from a a conversation he'd had with Aldous Huxley where he said, well, how are you going to get the kids to do it if you're telling them they can? The best way to get the kids to do something is put a thou shalt not on it. Uh, you know, I mean, when, when, when LSD was illegalised in 1977, uh, 1967, you'd had two years of an M, uh, the CIA operation out of Pontsbury in Belgravia and I mean, that had been sponsored by the CIA directly to bring LSD to people. Yeah, people in the popular culture. So, um, from that small flat, you've got people like Donovan, the Beatles, uh, Alexander Trockey, various people throughout the counterculture were going along to that place and getting acid. And another place where they were getting it was from Joel Elks. And then you find out that Joel Elks actually worked at Port and Down and there were sort of military crossovers. And so LSD, which had been looked at after the war as a truth drug, was still being looked at quite seriously. And, you know, how it affected our culture. You know, I mean, you could say that the whole Summer of Love kicked off the anti-Vietnam demonstrations, kicked off the Free Festival movement, and you've got Woodstock, etc. And you've also got a lot, a lot of dark stuff come out of that sort of time. You know, I mean, some, some of the ways that we are controlled now are, are you know, very, very clever. Well, you know, I think we're more people. controlled through social media a lot more as well. Is that what they yeah, I, I had a bit of a reaction again. I mean, I ended up getting, you know, quite distasteful posts through my social media once I started getting near to things, etc. And I felt quite threatened for a while, you know, I mean... And it's, yeah, uh, it's quite a strange feeling. One that I'd been warned about by Penny Crass, I mean, when he'd done a lot of research into Wally's story, he, he ended up believing that MI5 were actually up the road from his house spying on him. And that can sound like a paranoid delusion, etc. But then one of his friends, Trevor Helms, which was a lawyer that got involved in trying, you know, trying to help Wally while he was in prison and in the psychiatric system, actually drove in one evening and saw two people in raincoats, etc., with a smart car at the top of the drive with binoculars. You know, it, it rattled a lot of cages. You know, the Russells weren't, you know, the Russells were a family that had been involved in the British system for a long time. Um, you know, I mean, you've got Russell's in the court of Queen Elizabeth I, which is when British intelligence really starts. You know, you've got John Dee, who's always been known as the father of intelligence, and he is an alchemist in Queen Elizabeth I. Yeah, there, was, there was something on BBC Two about that, wasn't there? There was a BBC Two series about that. I think. Well, I mean, this is it. I mean, 
for all of its bad side of media, there are things that are coming out. You know, the research that's being done is show, you know, is showing that what many of our conspiracy theories have been over the years are actually true. You know, we have been monitored for a long time, and the people that are running us are very interested in eugenics. You know, they believe that two-thirds of the human race would be best got rid of. You know, and I mean, when you start looking at the the, the deaths, etc., linked to drinking and drugs, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I end up being quite anti-drugs. I mean, I, I don't do any class A's anymore. I don't drink anymore. And I end up being quite against them because I, when I start looking down a roll call, I mean, just amongst my friends, people who died too early because of drink and drugs, the culture that is given to us, and we're told we're not, you know, that it's always a bit bad or, you know, drugs are a bit bad and that, but they're still there, you know, I mean, and then you start looking at how do they get there, and you start looking at people who are involved in the LSD research who were moving it out to the, you know, you start looking at the Operation Julie people, and you realise that they were originally set up by CAA money for a fellow called Ron Stark, who was also giving money to friends, to the Roundhouse, to Release, which was the drugs. Um, charity at the time, you know, I mean, they were putting serious money into the, the alternative movement. I mean, even people like Sir Jocelyn Stevens, you know, I mean, he ended up being chairman of English Heritage, you know, who lock us out and don't think whenever they can. But he was giving money to the original Stonehenge festivals. I mean, and once you start finding out things like that, then it really does start to raise some questions about whether it's our culture or whether it's something we've been given. You know, we've been fed, and it's just the same way as some people are fed. Britain's got talent or whatever, you know, I mean... Yeah, it's very, Yeah, it's very strange when you start looking at your culture, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I proudly wear a Kraft T-shirt, but can also then... It starts off, you thinking it's underground, but then it comes mainstream. The mainstream becomes underground again, and then it, 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 it always goes in circles, doesn't it? Lang. Now, Ardy Lang, 
was a psychiatric nurse and he had been trained by Angus Niven. And Angus Niven had been trained by Ewan Cameron. Now Ewan Cameron was doing experiments in the 1950s in Canada using LSD, flashing lights, um, repeated messages, noises, um, sleep deprivation, massive LSD. I mean, talking about giving people acid for six days running. Christ. And basically, he was trying to destroy their personalities and impose this psychic driving on them. So if you think that he then trained the fella who trained Ardy Lang, and then Ardy Lang goes down to London and he starts setting up things with International Times, with various other culture move, movers, and so you've got the, the anti-university, the Free School of London, all these little things that are, that are trying to create little social hubs, etc. And they're all, they're all being financed by these people who are clearly being paid by MI5 and CIA for their research. You know, Steve Abraham, who was approached in 1962 to write up about hypnosis and ESP. Well, he ends up being director of psychology at Oxford University. And during that time, he's in the Times, writes a massive, you know, they, they hired a whole page in the Times saying that the law on marijuana should be re-looked at. I mean, the Beatles signed it, various MPs signed it, all these sort of people signed it. And then you think, well, that money was coming from people who'd been promulgated by the CIA, and it's very oh, It gets very murky. You know, I'm, when I start to look at my punk mates, I've seen many people who, you know, we did. I've joked about it myself in the past. I once got dressed in the 80s, liked what I looked like, and I stayed like that. I mean, you know, Rich Cross is, is writing a book which is called The Hippies Now Wear Black. And it really is that we all took on this sort of punk rock sort of image lifestyle, if you like. And in some ways, punk rock was more about progress, wasn't it? Wasn't it about educating ourselves and learning? Well, and I think it's meant to the anti-establishment, anti-everything, but... Definitely. But, yeah. And so start questioning, so why did they feed that? You know, yeah. the hippie movement broke down, you know, respect for authority. They're always saying it, you know, there is no authority, was one of Crass's. But you've got Timothy Leary sort of saying, you know, be true to your own, which goes right back to Alistair Crowley, and do as thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, the, the law under love. You know, I mean, I know Timothy Leary went on, on film a couple of times saying that he saw himself as continuing the work of Alistair Crowley. And then you start looking at Crowley's British intelligence links, you know, operations running along Kent doing covenants against the Germans.
size of telephone directories, and they're full of punk flyers and stories about people who are you know, going through that movement at, at that time. And and they're great. And so I'm sort of hoping to do one of those about Stonehenge, you know, tales from Stonehenge. Um, the Wally book I'm hoping will be called the Psychedelic Anarchists. And yeah, the research is. And will continue. I mean, I'll carry on digging even after I've written the book. You know, I mean, it's something that has got part of my life, and I'd find hard to let go of. Really, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm very much in Penny Rambo's view that Wally Hope was murdered. You know, that the overdose that he died of was administered by himself. And then when you look at things like, I mean, during the there were four different uh, coroner's inquests. The first one was just totally adjourned. The second one, the police toxicology hadn't got their stuff together. The third one, which was, yeah, that was a three. The third one, when they decided that he, you know, when they wrote him down as suicide, the doctor that had looked after him, all sorts of people had, had complained about that um, verdict. There'd been a needle mark in the first coroner's report, and that had disappeared from the second report. And the doctor that did his autopsy raised one interesting fact. He said, well, if Phil Russell had done these pills that killed him, there would have been a lot of blue residue in his stomach. And there was no blue residue in his stomach. Really? Uh, in 1992, you know, we're talking, what's that, 22 years after Wally's death? Yeah. The doctor is still writing to the company that made Welderm drug that is said to have killed Wally, saying, okay, well if this drug was injected, there wouldn't be any blue residue in the stomach, would there? And he's never, well, he's passed on now, unfortunately, Dr. Hatfield, because I would just so love to have talked to him. But, yeah, he, he was still, 22 years later, writing to the drug company to say, well, I sort of believe you, but it must have been injected, mustn't it? And, yeah. What do you think? What do you think of the more recent things that um, have been said about Stonehenge, you know, about um, the way they've changed it all? Because when I went up yeah. the other time, the, the, they seem to have moved the people away from the actual site towards the visiting yeah. centre, and the centre bit's way past the actual, where the, 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 the stones are. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... This is it. When I I look at things from a historical pros, um, perspective, so if I then accept the people who were later directors of English heritage, I mean they, you know, basically people who were involved in the first festivals that got people to Stonehenge really wanted the fence around Stonehenge. There wasn't a fence until August 1976. That's the first time they actually put up a permanent fence all the way around Stonehenge. Now the history of that is Wally's festival happened on the Stonehenge field, which if you know the geography of, of um, Stonehenge, it's surrounded. It's, it's in a triangular field. It's got a dirt track along one side of it, and it had the A303 down one side and the 344 down the other side. So this little triangle of land had been where the original festival had happened in 1974. The following year, 
5,000, 6,000 people. And you've got people like Joe Strummer played there with his band, the 101ers. You've got Here and Now played one of their very early gigs there. Um, Paul Quinn got involved, you know, um, the global trucking company. Lots and lots of bands, etc. as well as lots of...
you were quite impressed by the power and the, the majesty of the place. Um, I mean, luckily we get in four times a year. We've got the winter solstice coming up at the end of this week. On Friday morning at sunrise, I will be there waiting for the sun to come well, or the clouds to get brighter. At Stonehenge, you know, it's winter solstice on Friday, and yeah, I expect a gathering of about 7,000 people. Naive as 
clearer as they try and make us believe. I mean, when you start looking at the monuments just in the area around Stonehenge and Avery, and you start to realise that these were very guided people. They had you know, very strong ideas. They had the people. I mean, it would have needed thousands of people to get Stonehenge through its 2,000-year alterations in itself. You know, I mean... The landscape was shaped, burial mounds were built, alignments were made. You know, I mean, <coughs> our culture wouldn't get together, you know. Our culture couldn't get together to build a bleeding wall, could it? You know, I mean... Yeah, yeah well, that's true, that's true, yeah. And, and, you know, you start looking at a primitive culture, and then you say, yeah, but everyone was working on it. <coughs> the effort it would have taken to build Stonehenge. And then you've got the facts that you've got people coming from all over the world, you know, you've got stuff coming from the Baltic that's been, you know, beads and materials, uh, you've got, you've got, um, I'm trying to think what the flints, that's where I was losing, you've got flints from all over Britain, you've got a Greek archer, I mean, in, a in Amesbury, the nearest village to Stonehenge, where the school is now, while they were building the school, they they dug up a burial mound of, a, of an archer. And he was obviously of great rank. He had gold ornaments, he had a full quill of um, arrows, etc. You know, I mean, and these were people who were coming, you know, from Greece. I mean, Greece is a few hours to fly to, isn't it? Can you imagine trying to come there? Probably would have taken in the year, months, wouldn't it? 1000 BC. Yeah. You know, it's, you're talking about people who were coming across the world on foot or on horse just to be get to that place, you know, I mean, and that, well, that's what I still know now. I've, I've been at Stonehenge and I've met people who've travelled from Lithuania, Tasmania, you know, from every corner of the world, people are called to Stonehenge at some point, and then they get there, and they're funnelled through a, a visitor centre where they're selling English heritage monopoly sets and mugs and t-shirts at ridiculous prices, etc., they get stuck on a bus, driven down to Stonehenge, which is about a mile away, given... ...three quarters of an hour or so to run down the stones, at great distance from the stone, and then they're pushed back into the into the bus again and taken back off to the business centre. Thank you for coming and bye. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, basically, you know, and, and I've met many people who are disgruntled, you know, people, you know, you look at TripAdvisor and a lot of their, you know, a lot of the feedback was very negative, you know, it's still looking like a building site, I mean, they were originally meant to run these um, Land Rover sort of um, carriages for people, a little land train they call it, Land Rover Land Train, but they found it wasn't up to the job, so they're running buses as we'd see in a town centre backwards and forwards to the stones at the moment. But they, they, they signed a thing called the, the Stonehenge Vision, which was sort of saying where they wanted Stonehenge to be by 2020. And it involved not having the permanent fence, it involved not having vehicles in the landscape. So yeah, English heritage have got some, some sorting out to do, because otherwise they're, they're mismanaging one of our greatest assets, you know, in I love the, you know, I understand we need people there to look after Stonehenge. You know, I'd be worried if they weren't there, to be honest. 
some of the nutters out there wanting to make publicity in that, what would be greater than to have your logo painted on Stonehenge? And, oh, of course, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you understand that part. I'm too glad there's Photoshop and that, so yeah. you don't actually, you know, but it's those sort of things, you know, it's, you know, I would, I would be worried if there wasn't an organisation or someone there looking after the stones. Not so heavy-handed. And I'd like to research it to do a good job of it. You know, I mean, they're, re they're, they're recently appointed solstice manager, Caroline Johnson. I mean, hopefully we'll be able to move forward. I mean, she's worked with various festivals, etc. so hopefully she understands a bit of where we're coming from. And she also understands that English heritage have got to turn what is a massive event. You know, in the, one of the busiest years, we had 37,000 people at Stonehenge for that night. You know, I mean, that was the peak. That was about, what, 2009. And now it sort of, it comes in around 17 to 24,000 people, but that's still a beautiful free gathering. Mm. You know, and, I mean, they have to pay for the car park now, so I believe it's time we started giving them what, you know, something worth paying for. So I think if you do, if you had a bit of, like a big summit meeting, obviously it never happened, but you could come to a conclusion like you, if you said, right, we'll police this bit ourselves, we'll make sure there's nothing going on, nothing stupid, like, and you, we, we'll keep to your rules, you keep, uh, we won't do nothing that you we, don't want We've been in those conversations for years, Mark, with, uh, I mean, myself, I've been going to round table meetings for ten years now, there is a, for the anniversary of Wally's death, I wanted to get Penny Crass to come along and read some of his poetry at Stonehenge, and he wanted to come along with a cello. He wanted to play this piece with a cello. And he wanted the cello to have a small, you know, just a small, tiny little speaker next to it, so that the cello would be amplified, etc. And they actually told me at one of these meetings, well, an amplified cello would constitute a festival. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of... <laughs> oh, I must have had loads of festivals at home, then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what they actually then go pointing to is the Stonehenge Act of 1994. And in the Stonehenge Act of 1994, it does actually say that there is to be no amplified sound within the Stonehenge field. But they walk around on these tours with these little audio books. Yeah, you could, yeah, you could, you could play on that, which yeah. Which is the yeah. sound. Yeah. And, and the security fellas are all walking around with, with, with walkie-talkies. It's amplified sound. Amplified sound. So They're breaking the law themselves, aren't they? We have our own little bit of amplified sound for yeah. one night of the year. I mean, it's just laughable. You know, it really yeah. is. We're in a situation where the state can't admit they're wrong. And therefore, we can't get any further forward. You know, they at one point said that all the festival was bad, they were all druggies, they were all bad people. And they can't actually understand that the people who were gathering there... I mean, the festival was a small part of things. There was a riot in 1956. There was um, fireworks and flares being thrown around it. argument in 19, uh, in 1898, when the leader of the ancient order put a curse on the landowner, uh, Lord Antrobus, and 
two years later, a couple of members of his family were dead, you know, I mean, so some of the history of, of Stonehenge and people who have tried to keep us out and the people who have tried to get in, I mean, it's, we are part of that story, you know, I mean, when I go to Stonehenge now and I've got the Union Wally, which is a Union Jack with a big smiley in the middle of it, and I've got Wally Hope's box, and I'm willing to tell the story to anyone who comes and finds me. And there's a great many people that come to Stonehenge because of Wally Hope and about what he taught. So, yeah. Well, got me fascinated by the story because when you told me that time, I found it completely fascinating. And I, 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 I understood where you was coming from. I mean, I don't understand the all of it, obviously, because, yeah, but I, I'm willing to listen, you know, to think, oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, um, I mean, I've been doing a lot of DJing at festivals over the over the last few years, etc. But I also run, I always run a sort of Stonehenge information centre, you know, information desk, etc. With you know, news about the Stonehenge tunnel and various access issues. Um, I also involved with uh, festivals like Cosfest down in Devon, where I, where I run a whole tent. Is you know it's a cinema showing old festival films, but also an information gathering point, and you know I'm building up a massive archive. And I think over the next year I'm going to be moving from doing DJing to trying to get more talks done at festivals, trying to get you know um, I want to go up and do a, a thing at, um, on, at Notting Hill, Portobello Road. I want to go and do a talk up there. I've got a film now which tells the story of Wally Hope, and I'm hoping to bring that to DVD in January. Um, you can't yeah. get a TV company into it, you know, like... See, because Net, people like Netflix and people like that do documentaries, don't they? Well, yeah, I don't know I'd go near Netflix, but... Um, yeah, definitely, there's, it, it needs... The, the film that's been made is great, but... It was a capture of the information that he understood at the time. So I mean, I could build, I could, yeah, I could do an eight-hour documentary and still feel I was missing things out. It really is a very involved and intense story. But well, and I hope your listeners all look forward to my book when it comes out. Hopefully, called the Psychedelic Anarchist. But, I mean, there are books out there. There's Penny Rambo's Last of the Hippies, and also his Shibboleth, which is a book he wrote. More recently, I think he wrote that about 2000, and it sort of tells a more honest story of um, Wally Hope. I mean, he admitted that at the time when he wrote the original story, Last of the Hippies, which went out in the box there with the Crass Records, that he very much was angry. You know, he was very consumed by the anger. I mean, he'd spent two years investigating the death of his friend and got to a point where it ended up so paranoid that he spent a lot of relevant material in the garden but I mean he let me into a bit of a secret which is that he didn't really burn that much of it and in his book he had a little bit and he said maybe one day someone will come along and ask me for these papers and start looking into where I was at with it and I've been that I, you know, I, I was that lad I, I knocked on the door at Carl house and I said I've got Wally Hope's box and now I want to tell his story and so the papers that Penny gave me, I, I refer to them as Dial House Archive, you know, are, are, are really important. But also, I mean, the other side of it came in, all the people that knew him pre-festivals and that side of his life. So, yeah, it's going to be a, a, an interesting, interesting.
by C.J. Stone. Now, that, during that, uh, you know, throughout the course of that book, he visits Penny Rambo at Dial House a number of times and is given a story of Wally Hope, which, you know, if you read anything by C.J. Stone, it really, you know, he's quite a grabbing writer. Yeah, no, yeah, no I've interviewed him, I think, Trespassers, poets, mystics, murderers and rebels in London's great forest. It's by a fellow called Will Ashon. If you look, I think he's got it up on um, various uh, sites that they've been in. It's a story, uh, it's, it's a collection of stories from Dick Turpin to Penny Rambo, basically. People who've lived in and around Epping Forest. And, I mean, that is one of my recent reads. Um, yeah, the, there are bits of information out there. Uh, like I say, up on YouTube, I've got The Way of the Wally. And then next year, Everyone's Wally will be coming out as a DVD. And then probably a bit later, I'll put it up on YouTube for everyone to have. But, you know, from sales of DVD, I can then put in Freedom of Information requests to the prison. Find more way You know, there's a, there's a lot more research that I still need to do, you know. And, that's, it is quite strange. Like I said, when I first met you, I was talking about writing a book within a year, and now, I mean, that that book would have been a fraction of what I, could, you know, what I am writing. So it's now. the case, isn't um, it? Though, when you start getting in deeper and deeper, you find out more and more. And say you had written a book, just for argument's sake, you had to go back to it and add on more chapters. Add on to yeah. the chapters you already written. Yeah. Which is obviously, I mean, that's always tempting, but I think really. Do him justice, really. I need to put as much of the story into the original book as I can, so anything that I write after that can be separate, can be maybe more about where Stonehenge went. You know, because there's a lot of stories that I'm in, interested in from later on in our movement. You know, I very much feel myself as a bard or a storyteller of our culture, and our culture was the one that Maggie set out to decommission. I mean, that was what Maggie Thatcher actually said. Before, Stone, uh, before Stonehenge 1986, is that she had set out to decommission a lifestyle, you know? And that was my life, that was my life, and I was happy with it. And the people I knew, you know, a lot of the travellers I knew were beautiful, happy, smiley people, you know? The, the, the image that they started to put into the papers of angry, brew-drinking... Yeah, it's the one that stuck in people's minds, you know? I'm afraid, isn't it? Because we recently yeah, had... We recently in Biddeford, people wanted to have a travellers site in Biddeford, but then over 300 people turned up and said, oh, we're not having them here, they're going to do such and such. And I, I put that to oh, you haven't even met them, you haven't even talked to them, yeah. talked to them first. They might not be these people. What they call, is it, a moral panics and folk devils, isn't it? You know, yeah. They're very clever at stirring up. You know, they can stir us up about anyone. I mean, they used to burn witches, you know, they used to burn the herbalists and the midwife from the village. We, we all need a scapegoat. It's, it's who we are. Same with um, anything in politics. That's, yeah. what, that's why Trump got into power. He was very good at 
blaming something else. Yeah, of course. That's what we do. Anyway, it's, it's been good